harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. That's a sad verse. But I don't think the harvest is over for Eastern Camp quite yet this year. But camp is almost over. It's been an amazing focus this week to talk about our urging the Lord Jesus to come. I've been blessed through classes and forums and messages and songs by young and old. But before we get to that point of asking Jesus to come, there's something that has to precede that. There's a request that Christ makes. He beckons us first to come. And with the help of the Lord, I'd like to explore that idea of how we respond to Christ saying, come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The journey this evening is not for the faint of heart. But it is what the Lord gave me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you you have come to this place this week as you always do because of the invitation and the prayers of so many people begging you to be here, begging you to inspire, begging you to do the work that you do in the hearts of men that no one else can do. We thank you for your presence, for the peace, for great behavior across the board. We thank you for safety and pray for a safe journey home that many of us will embark on tomorrow. We thank you for everyone that came from near and far, for the many people that have never been here before that are here today, we thank you. For some that have come after not being here for a long time, we thank you. For some that are here every year because they have a hunger and thirst for your word, we thank you. And we pray for everyone in this building and everyone watching that your spirit can reach them because we know that your spirit is not bounded. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you run into someone that you haven't seen for a long time, a long lost friend or a family member where maybe years or decades have passed, and you see them across the room, what do you do? Well, you don't go and do something else or have another hors d'oeuvre or go get to something at the fridge. No, you go over to them. You might even run.
to embrace them. What if someone walked out here right now? Maybe a friend, a loved one, a grandparent or a parent or a spouse that's gone beyond to be with the Lord. What if they walked out here right now and stood right beside me in the middle of this sermon? I guarantee you, whoever's loved one that was, you'd run. You wouldn't care about the decorum of the place or the awkwardness. You would run to touch that person again, to hold them in your arms, to share that expression of love. Luke 15, 18 through 20 says, I will arise and go to my father, will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he is yet a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion, and he ran. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. There's other reasons that we run. I was on an adventure one day. I was probably about 12. A few of my friends, we were out kind of in the boondocks where my folks had a cottage. We decided we'd take an adventure and we went deep into the woods, deep to places that not too many people go. We found ourselves on a dirt road, not well-traveled. No cars had passed us. We actually were not even sure where we were going. We were kind of lost and so we felt like, you know what, we'll just we'll follow this road and see where it takes us. And after a while, we kind of came to a little clearing in the area and there was a house. It was dilapidated, needed paint. One of those front yards that doesn't really get mowed. There's a couple old Chevys and an old tractor. We walked by that house, didn't see any signs of life, but we noticed uh, kind of a busted down chicken coop and right next to the house, it was a doghouse. It's pretty big. And all of a sudden, just because of our gravelly feet on the road, there was a howling, horrible noise that came out of that house, that doghouse. And it was this Cujo-like monstrosity. I don't know if it was a German shepherd mixed with a St. Bernard, but it was big and we didn't assess the situation very long. We ran! And mercifully, as we ran, we checked over our shoulders and we saw there was a large chain attached to that dog, but as he reached the end of that chain, the whole house shook! But the chain held, and I'm here today. 
So sometimes we run to things. Other times we run from things. John 10, 13 says, The hiring fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. John 12, the verse before the NLT translation says, a hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. So the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. I'd like to share with you a time when some Israelis ran. Around 60 AD, there was a man named Josephus. He was a scribe, a learned man, documented different happenings in Israel. And at this time, Israel was in the midst of a war with Rome because they were occupied, as we know at the time of Christ, they were inhabited by Rome and controlled by Rome, and they didn't like it. There was uprisings all over. And this Josephus was part of one of the uprisings and he was at one point chased into a cave and within this cave they were cornered. And the men that he was cornered with made a pact. They said, we will not be captured alive. We will commit suicide in this place before the Romans take us. And I don't know the details because the story is what we've heard from Josephus' hand, but he didn't end up dying. I don't know if he's a coward or his uh, knife was kind of short. I don't know what the deal was, but he survived that ordeal. He was captured. He ended up becoming a scribe for the Romans. Many in Jerusalem that knew of him called him a traitor. Nevertheless, by his hand, many events are recorded. There was a man named Lucius Flavius Silva, commander of a Roman legion. As part of this battle with the Jews in Jerusalem, he was instructed to go and capture or overtake a group of Jewish radicals. These Jewish radicals knew they were being pursued, so they went to a place where they thought they might be safe. Some of you have been there, no doubt. Some of you, maybe many of you have heard of it. It's a place called Masada. Now, Masada was a fortress slash palace. And when Herod was king, he kind of spent a lot of money embellishing this place as a fortress and as a palace. And the reason was is that Herod feared two things. He feared an uprising by the Jewish people that he would have to flee. He wanted a nice place to go to that was safe. He also feared Cleopatra that um, was kind of sword saber rattling, suggesting she may come out of Egypt and take over Israel. So he spent a lot of money and time creating both a palace but a fortress. And if you look at this fortress, it's pictures of it available today. It's built on the top of a very large mesa. At some points, the cliffs are 1,300 feet high. And it's very hard to access. And that's why it's a very secure castle or fortress-type structure. 
It had armaments for, I think, 10,000 men and storages of food and all kinds of things. So the Jewish rebels decided this is where they're going to go. They're going to make a stand here at Masada because no one can make it after them. It's a tough place to get to. It's high upon the Mesa and it's well protected and there's food that's already there even though the food had been stored for years, the dried figs and whatnot. There was still food available. They took food with them and 960 some odd Jews went up to Masada for protection. Lucius was not a man that was about to let these 960 Jews escape him, though. So he went there. And he saw that it was up on a mesa and tough to, tough to get after, so he created an encampment, and the, the remains of that are still there today. He brought his soldiers there and tried to devise a plan. One of the problems is the way Masada is constructed, there's only one, there's two roads to it, but the one main road to get to is a tortuous path that comes up one of the mountainsides. It zigs back and forth. The name of that road is the serpent. And try as they might, accessing Masada by this road was not good. The Jews up there would just shower them down with the rocks and whatever they had, and they couldn't do it. So they decided, we will instead build a ramp. And they started building this ramp, and the ramp is still there today. They started building this wide, substantial ramp that they would slowly build and approximate the side of this fortress, and they would build a parapet and, and destroy it with a battering ram and get in there and capture and kill these rebel Jews. During construction, there was a problem. They were still throwing rocks. So they said, let's bring in some Jewish slaves. And that's what they did. And the Jews, unfortunately, looked down and said, we cannot kill our brethren. So they stopped casting stones. And after I think it was three or so months, the ramp was completed. And up the ramp they went with their brigade and their tools of destruction. But the Jews of Masada saw what was coming and they had a different plan. They knew the fortress was about to be breached. They knew their days were numbered and they did not want to be taken captive. So they cast lots for 10 men. And these 10 men took their swords and all the people of Masada laid down, huddled in their small family groups. Fathers, wives, and children. And these 10 men walked from one family to the next and took the sword and slew every family. And when the 10 men were left, they cast lots again, and the one upon whom the lot fell took his sword and killed those nine men. And then he burned the palace 
and anything that could be burned and fell on his own sword. And the Romans busted through, expected an onslaught, got nothing. And they walked through and saw the slaughter. And Josephus was there to document what happened. And he got a little more information from two women and a few children that had hidden back in a cave. You can read all kinds of stories you want about castles and fortresses. It's tough to hold up under the onslaught of a persistent enemy. If there's breaches, if there's problems, you're finished. And even if there's no breach, if your castle's really good, you know what they do? They surround you and they lay siege. You know what that is? They just sit there and wait till you run out of food and you start having a lot of dead bodies and disease and you're finished. I'd like to spend a few moments addressing the believers. Ezekiel says this in chapter 36. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Job 1 says this. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. God is interested in our strength, in putting a hedge about us, in giving us a new heart and protecting us. God takes us out of the relic, the destroyed, the compromised castle that we ruined and says, I'm gonna give you a new heart and put a hedge around you. And as it were, for the sake of argument, he builds within us a castle. He takes us within to a fortress that he has created with his own hands. He says, reside in this place. And this fortress will be built by me. It'll be bolstered by Christian families. It'll be supported by solid churches and great Christian relationships. And we will protect one another within this fortress. And no man nor Satan can destroy the fortress, the kingdom of the Lord Almighty.
The first night here, Brother David mentioned about the bombs going off in Gaza. I don't want to talk a lot about it, but if you look around the nation of Israel, they are surrounded by maniacs. They are surrounded by people that hate them. They are surrounded by countries in upheaval. And all those, these countries are fighting within themselves and among themselves, but all these countries have one thing in common, make no mistake, they all hate the Jews. And those are God's people. And Christians are God's people. And the word says, the end times will not be pretty. We need to be strong, brothers and sisters. We need to look around this castle that we have because there are breaches even in this castle because of our own indifference, our own inaction, our own indetentiveness. Isaiah 58, 8 says, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. 11 and 12 say, And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they shall be, and they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations and many, of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Brothers and sisters, we must repair the breach. And you may say to me, Tom, what, what breaches are you talking about? They're the breaches that weaken this fortress, that make the fortress less stable than God wants it to be, that allows the enemy to get an arrow in here or a stone in there. We have to be vigilant. Fathers, and I speak to myself, we need to lead our households. If we have children, we need to teach our children every day the importance of what Christ did and the importance of spiritual strength and resilience in the midst of the battle. They need to know the word so they recall it in their heart in the midst of difficulty. Mothers, care for your children. I know it's tough. You're battling every day and it's easy to get weary and turn a blind eye to to some problems or situations that you really need to be involved in. Fight the fight. Engage the battle. I'm not saying fight with your children, but take those difficult topics. Talk to them. Grab your spouse and say, we need to talk to you. 
I know it's uncomfortable. Repair the breach. Spouses, you may be married a few months, not really talking to you. Those of you that are married a few years, maybe a few decades, are you treating her like you did day one? Or do you treat her like a buddy from high school? Rekindle what you had. And if you never had it, find a way to let that person know that the love that you have is profound. And if it isn't, you better start digging and finding out why. Because I guarantee some of the fault is with you, brother, or you, sister. Both of you together. Repair the breach. We cannot afford to have our marriages suffer or our marriages be in a situation where we're just getting along. We're just eking by till the end. No. Let it be vibrant. Let it be passionate. Yes, I said that. Let it be affectionate. Let it be meaningful. Let it be sacrificial. Get there if you're not there now. You can do it. It may shock your spouse. Do it. Run to that situation. Run to repair that breach. There's no time to waste. Children, look at your siblings if you have them. I guarantee you there's work to be done there. There's a greater level of patience, a greater level of concern, a greater need to make sure that your home is not a battlefield, that your home is part of that castle structure. It's gotta be that way. It's tough enough in the world. Don't make the home a battlefield. Learn to love each other. Forget the small stuff. Focus on the big stuff. Elders, who am I to tell you anything? But the Spirit says, be bold. Be bold with your fellowships. And be bold in this. Be bold in saying, we will do what the Bible says. And the other stuff is not as important. Not saying the traditions are bad or the practices are bad, but what's important is what the scripture says. That's paramount. If the Lord sees us focusing on scripture and adhering to that, the rest will fall in place. We, if we're focusing on scripture, we don't have to be afraid. Believers, support your leaders. Spend five or 10 times as much time edifying instead of criticizing. criticizing. How many breaches exist in our churches because we're hammering away at a small problem and losing sight of the blessing that so much of us live in every day? Stop creating the breaches and bring some spackle and mortar to church instead. See what that does to your spiritual life.
find the breach, run to it, and fill it. First Samuel 17 says this. And all this, this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with a sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran. He ran. Do you get that? My word. He ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it, smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Stop here for a moment. Think about this famous story. David tried on the armor, can't work with it. The entire army huddled, afraid of this Goliath. And David goes out with a sling and a few stones. Remember this. It wasn't just Goliath. It was an entire Philistine army. If I'm David, I'm thinking, okay, I got my sling. I knock down the Goliath guy. Let's say I get lucky and I kill him. Then what happens? All the Philistines are ticked off, but let's find out what he did. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David, he turned and ran back home because his work was done. No, no, that's not how the story goes. Therefore, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took the Philistine's sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head. He finished the job with the entire Philistine army there. See, I got the guy's sword. His head is severed from his body. How'd you like that, army? And the Philistine army saw their champion was dead and they fled. They ran. Brothers and sisters, we are called to leave that protective castle. My dear brother Sam sat right there. He knows what it is to enter the fray every day. Into the fray we go, we leave that protective castle, the cocoon of Eastern Camp. The castle, this is part of that castle. And we go into the fray. Discouragement, disgust, temptation, difficulty, you name it. The Lord wants us to understand what David did. When we see the giant and the army, we've got to run. We have to recognize that beyond the giant, beyond the army, is the face of the Lord. We've got to run into the fray because the battle is the Lord's. How scary is that? It doesn't make any sense, but that's the example that we learn from David. 
Run into the fray knowing that the Lord is there. The battle is his. One giant, a thousand Philistines, run. Those of you that do not know the Lord, we need a few minutes together as we wrap up this week. I'm astounded if you've lasted this long, frankly. And I know the challenge is that for many of you, the Lord's touched your heart, but just not quite there yet. Not quite ready to move forward. I'm going to go with you to your castle right now. And you're going to show me around. You're going to tell me the story. I walk up to the gate and hand over hand I come inside. Explain to me the story of how it all came to look this dismal. You got there and the place was palatial type fortress. Strong and stout, everything looked good. Nice kitchen area, good area to sleep and eat, good walls all around. There's a main gate, you see, a large main gate with a steel door. It's very, very heavy. And you tell me how one day you were there and a man came up the serpent road. Yes, it's just like Masada here. And up the serpent road came a man dressed in beautiful white array with a large sack over his shoulder. He came to the gate and he said, you gotta let me in. I got some stuff to show you. I got some changes to make in the castle. It's going to be amazing. He had a gleaming smile and he looked so nice. So hand over hand, he took that chain again and up came the gate. It's a heavy door and a heavy chain. And he came in. And he came in and shook your hand and talked for a moment. And as he shook your hand, you noticed that his hand was, was soft and smooth. Nails are finely manicured. He put a sack down. He said, you know, let me just get this door. And he goes over to the door and he grabs the chain and the pulley system and he starts pulling on the chain and you notice something very strange right away. As he's pulling down the chain, his hand goes from this beautifully manicured man's hand to something almost claw-like that's veiny and scaly with long fingernails and he pulls the door down and the chain and as the door thuds to the bottom, he turns around and grins and grabs the chain one last time and does a mighty yank and the entire pulley system comes crushing to the ground. He says, not gonna need that door anymore. Change number one. And you proceed to tell me what happened over the next days and weeks and months and years. 
Wasn't exactly what you bargained for, was it? When you go over to the door, there's a special door many castles have that's separate from the main front entry gate. It's, it's a door where deliveries come in and things like that. Now this door is very, very thick. It's wooden. It had, used to have a small little hole in it that you could look through and make sure that people delivering goods, you could discern. See, above that little door hole, porthole, was a little brass placard that said discernment. And you'd look out that door to see what's coming. And if it was good, you could open the door and let them in. Unfortunately, though, you told me about how that door used to look because now the door doesn't look anything like that anymore. See, the door's still in place, but above the door where that portal was is an enormous hole that's been blown open. And just as you're explaining that to me, a gigantic, fiery ball of flame comes hurtling over our heads into your palace. And I duck, shocked at the concussion of the sound, and you tell me, oh, that happens all the time. And I look out over where the door is. I can't get out, but I can see that there's, there's a lineup of catapults sending these fiery balls all the time, I learn. The first one's got a label on it. I can barely make it out, but it says, World Wide Web. Wow. The second one says, smartphone, and it hurls another fiery ball over the wall, smashing into the back wall, creating more disaster. And I say, you live like this? Yeah, that's the changes we made. And I see another one that says, silly entertainment, and another ball sizzles over my head, and the final one is the biggest, and these balls of fire are gigantic, and that one's simply labeled pride. And all day long, these things are soaring over our head, creating mayhem, flame, and destruction. We go a little further as I look at the carnage all around. And you say, this is where the kitchen is. And I think, oh good, let's get in out of the, out of the flames. We open up the door, I'm expecting the smell of sweet bread and maybe some stuffed sausage. Instead, the stench of rotting flesh hits me like a brick wall. And I say, what are you doing in here? He's like, oh, it's, it's not really a kitchen anymore. We now use it. Uh, what are you storing in here? Uh, I'd rather not say. And I look around, and all around on the floor are these rotting carcasses of relationships that you have not taken care of. People you've abused people you've lied to, people that you started a relationship with on your own. For some of you, there's a few carcasses. For others, the room is full. I have to back out, I can't stay. The final place we go to is a place within many castles called the Castle Keep. That was an extra secure location where a family would flee to, where the important things were held. So there's still these things sizzling overhead and I run to that keep with you and we we open the door and I go in, I'm hoping to find something better than what I just saw. And, And again, there's a stench that hits me. It's not carcasses now, but it's just the smell of smoke, of burnt paper. And I look around and as as the dust settles and the light creeps into this dark room, I see that that it used to be a beautiful paneled library of sorts. 
but there's no books anywhere. All the books are on the floor, burnt to a crisp. And I walk around the room and I kick it to some of the, some of the littered ashes. And in the corner I see a relatively thick book that's not completely charred. And I lift open the charred lid and I see just the top corner, there's a few legible letters. Looks to me like the word Galatians. How disappointing. I look at you and you shrug your shoulders. You said, I got one book. So I go over and there's kind of like a podium in the middle of the room. I kind of didn't even see it for all the burnt things. And on this podium is a nice sized book. It's very thick. I look at the surface and I expect dust, but it's not dusty at all. I'm like, oh. And, but it's well worn, you see. And this book has simply the letters J.M. on the front. And I wonder, what is this? And I look at him, he's like, or you're like, and I open the book to the first page, the title page, and again, the letters are there, J.M., but underneath it, it says, Justification Manual. So I turn the page, page one, large block letters like a kindergartner would read. It's a very simple book. It's not heavy reading. Easy to memorize, frankly. First page says this, Everyone else does it. I look over at you and you shrug. I turn the page. Don't feel bad. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I keep turning pages. If it feels good, do do it. Here's a page that's been stapled and it says YOLO. Stands for you only live once. Next page. I'm a good person. I look at you again, and you're like, kinda. And then I say another one, next page. You don't need to repent now, I have time. All good people go to heaven, page after page of these gems. The church isn't perfect, so why join? Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm not hurting anyone else. This whole church thing is not for me. I attend regularly, that's enough. A few more pages, I cannot hardly stomach it anymore. I'm not gonna feel guilty about this anymore. God, you made me this way. I'm too far gone to be saved. There's a few more pages in that book. You know what I'm talking about. All of this book is lies. Make no mistake. So here you are, my friend. The week is over, basically. There's just a juggernaut of songs coming your way that I had a preview of. Good luck resisting. So here you stand. You're still in your desolate, destroyed castle. This thing that you thought you could preserve and stay safe in, it's a disaster. The flaming balls are still coming overhead. Do you still smell that kitchen stench? And the black soot is on your feet. The heavy gate is closed, and the pulley is broken. 
Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. That gate is right here. And guess what? As you're standing there in the courtyard, thinking about your situation, across the way you're staring at that gate. And all week long, people have been praying and praying and praying. And that gate, with a chain and pulley gone, has slowly started to creep up. And by the end of the week, because of all the effort, all the lessons, all the songs, all the sermons, all the inspiration hours, that gate right now, my friend, right now is pretty much wide open. And you know it, because you've been here before. If you've been here before. And then the smoke of the battle as you stare at that open gate not moving a figure appears appears through the smoke can't make it out too well as he approaches slowly walking you see that was once a white robe is is tattered smeared bloody it's dirty because he's coming off the battlefield. Stuff is flying all around. He's coming into your proximity off of basically your battlefield. And he's walking toward the gate. Closer and closer. Right now. This is not a fantasy. This is happening to you right now. And standing at the gate. And he's walking towards you. Jesus is his name. Let me read that verse again. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And here's the dilemma. From behind you comes that shadowy figure. You can feel his presence as the cold chill runs down your neck. He's always around in the shadows. His suit has been changed out. His white suit has been changed out for a greasy dark robe. His face well shrouded under the hood. You haven't seen his face. You know his voice very well. And he comes up beside you so slowly and unshoulders the bag from behind you and flops it right where you can see it. And the opening of the bag reveals the contents. And you stand there. And he's right behind you right now and he's whispering, don't go anywhere. This is where you wanna be. This is where you're comfortable. Bombs are bursting around you, the stenches in your nose, and he's just convincing you that, no, really, this is the place you want to stay. Isn't it, really? 
You can't leave. And you see, the disturbing thing about this whole scene, as Christ is still walking towards you right now, the disturbing thing is, you're standing there. And this sinister force, we knew his name. What should we call him? Your buddy? Lucifer, perhaps. This is the guy that came up the serpent road, remember? He reaches for the bag. He's not moving quickly, though. You know why? He's got experience with you. You just stand there. He pulls out the rope of indecision. He's got a name for it. With his other hand, he reaches in for a chain. This chain, some of you that are older, you've, you saw it once. He wraps the chain around his arm and it clinks and clanks. It's probably the chain he pulled off your door. And he gets to the end of the chain, he pulls it up. There's a large barbed meat hook on the end. The chain of sin is here. He's gonna stuff that sucker in your back and wind it around because that's what you're used to, baby. That's what you seem to like. And he's still behind you now and he takes those scaly hands and he runs them up and down your upper arms. He says, just hold still. This won't hurt a bit. And you hear the chain clanking. This is not fantasy. This is reality. Christ in your face with his hand to his chest saying to you, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he calls you by name, watch the mouth whisper your name, can hardly hear it for the bristles coming overhead, and he calls out your name, listen to him say your name right now in this moment. He says, come. And the cold whisper comes as well. It says, stay. My friend, you gotta run! You gotta run right now! Because as soon as you walk out the door tonight, that gate starts coming down and you know it's true. And you'll hear that ratty chain wiggle and you'll feel that piercing in your back and you'll know, ah, oh, another opportunity lost. The prayers of the saints have worked mightily this week to give you an out. You gotta run right now. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and it is safe. Run.